everyone. I am your host, Rebecca Theodore Fashad, and welcome to the Spectrum Lounge, where we discuss creatives of color changing the game in TV, film, and pop culture. On this episode, we chat with BET.com ent- entertainment editor Jerry L. Barrow as we recap the season four premiere of Insecure and also review the controversial new Netflix series, Black as Fuck, from creator Kenya Barris. Hi, Jerry. Welcome back. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. We've got a lot to talk about. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Today. So much. So much. Oh, my gosh. So I thought we'll we'll start with this. We'll, we, we can start with the stuff that we like, and then we'll move to the subject <laughs> that we don't like. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So last Sunday... Um, was the season premiere of season four, uh, season premiere of, uh, yeah, the fourth season of Insecure um, back on HBO. I'm so happy that the show is back. Um, of interest, uh, this episode, last week's episode was actually re- written by Issa Rae and the director was Kevin Bray. Um, and the title of the episode was Low Key Feeling Myself. I think that's the recurring theme of all the titles of the episodes this season, right? Is low key. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. So tonight's what is tonight's is, is for a sneak peek for anybody is, um, low key distant, low key distance. Ha. Dun, 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 That's a good dun. one. <laughs> and then I think episode three is low key. Thankful episode four is low key losing it. And ep- wow. And episode five is low key moving on. Interesting. Okay. So what did you think? So what, how were you feeling about uh, last the last season? I'm sorry, last week's episode. I, I liked it. Um, I really uh, enjoyed that we were set up about Issa and Molly's continued tension. They picked up right where we left off from season three because we think things ended really weird at the, um, they did the screening of The Last Dragon out so outdoors and it was like <laughs> the graveyard for the ghost of X's past and Molly and Issa kept running into dudes that they had been involved with before but were still kind of shading each other on the low for their decisions and that continued into season one's first season four's first episode. Um Issa's still trying to get this block party of hers off the ground and of course she's um got some help in the form of condola and condola has the connection with (laughs) isa that comes to bring some tension in the crew as isa finds out in this episode that uh condola is dating her ex lawrence Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And then, but <laughs> you know, Molly, she's going strong with Andrew, um, our friend Alex Hodge, and hey, Alexander Hodge, and they're you know dealing with the growing pains of a relationship and figuring out what are we going through that whole phase. And then Issa, she is adjusting to life as a building manager. Um, she's living rent free, but she's got to learn how to fix the plumbing. And (laughs) so she at least doesn't have to worry about paying rent while she's putting this block party together. And she's made some friends, um, in her building. 
and we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I was I was just so happy to see the show back. I we didn't we didn't get season four in 2019 um, because um, this was good news. Issa pretty much had her um, hands full. She was working on the photograph. Um, she's also got that um, other um, uh, rom com coming out with. Uh, uh, What's his name? Oh my God, Ninjanji. I cannot remember his name, but that—that's the one where he's the South Asian, the South Asian American actor. Um, we called, we kind of called it the Reverse Queen and Slim. <laughs> I forget <laughs> the name. Of the, I forget what the name of the title is. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, Issa was busy. She was like the it girl in 2019, so they kind of paused production, um, you know, to do that. So I, I kind of felt like especially now that we're under, you know, the social distancing and the home quarantine. Um, this is like the content that I need <laughs> yes. in order to survive <laughs> this pandemic. So it was just, it was just like really seeing like old friends again. And it was just like, this is like, you just immerse yourself into that world. And uh, like for 30 minutes, like that's where I'm at. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it, I've, I've been really happy to see, I mean, with season three, the way season three ended, um, it was just a beautiful ending to me as far as Issa's character, because she was someone, you know, she was with season three. She was kind of like, you know, uh, couch surfing on Daniel's, um, you know, at Daniel's home. She was like without a home. She was just adrift, uh, no job. And then by the end of season three, we see that she finally is getting some direction um, in the in the uh, form, at least career wise, with cre- um, putting this uh, block party together. Um, her love life wasn't the best, right? I mean, she was dating that one guy, the really light skinned guy, um, Nathan. who kind of ghosted yep. Nathan, who ghosted on her, and then the thing with Daniel fell apart. But what I loved about season three, with that ending shot of her finally getting her apartment together, because that was the thing is like throughout season three, we saw that she was kind of living out of her boxes, and in a way, it was sort of like this way of expressing how she was not settled. Mm-hmm. in her life yet. And then for her to finally just be on that couch uh, in her apartment with everything, you know, put up, that was just a very uh, hopeful ending. And so I was glad to see in season four, uh, you know, last week's episode that she's she's very, very much focused on getting this block party together. Um, I really like her friendship with Condola. I love Condola. I think she's a great addition to the show. Um, you know, she's just very polished. Condola is sort of like, what I wish I were like when I it was like when I grow up, I want to be Condola because so, <laughs> she just looks like the type of woman. Like her hair is just perfect. She looks like the g- type of girl whose nail polish never chips. She never gets a run in her stuff. <laughs> like she just looks like she pays like her rent on time, her credit card bills. Like everything is good with Condola. So you know, it's kind of interesting to kind of see this. Uh, is looking at the differences between she and Issa, I think they kind of balance each other out. You know what I mean? Like Issa kind of looks at her as like a mentor, somebody to emulate. And I think, you know, she, Condola appreciates Issa's passion. Um, you know what I mean? And kind of like this carefree attitude that she has. So I think they're like a good balance for each other. Um, this tension with Molly. So we, the, with the opening of season four, we see Issa in her apartment and she's on the phone and she says, you know, I don't, I don't fuck with Molly like that anymore. I don't mess with Molly. And it was like, 
Dun, dun, yeah. what? Wait a minute. <laughs> and so what we're real what we're going to see is that season four is going to be basically a flashback. So when we see her on the couch and then the next scene, uh, it's it's four months ago. So this season four is basically uh, you know, the four months that's going to lead to Issa and Molly's fallout. Um, and like you said, this has probably been a long time coming, yeah. right? Because yeah. we've seen throughout the past three seasons, there's some dysfunction in this <laughs> friendship, right? Very much. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, um, the showrunner of, of Insecure is Prentice Penny. And I believe one of Prentice Penny's first uh, jobs uh, was on uh, the Mayor Brock Appeal um, sitcom Girlfriends. Um, and so it's been very interesting. A lot of people have said this and, and commented how Molly and Issa are kind of a reflection of the Joan and Tony friendship yes. from Girlfriends. And if you watch Girlfriends, um, you know, I think it was like the, by the fourth or fifth season, um, Joan and Tony did have a falling out. Um, and partly because, uh, the actress who, who played Tony child, uh, Jill Marie Jones left the show. And so when the, when it came back for season six, I believe, um, the last two seasons of girlfriends, Tony basically moved back to New York and, I remember this season specifically because it was very painful for me to watch is just to kind of see the disintegration of this friendship of this 30 year friendship that these two women had had with each other. And there was no resolution. Um, the show, I think, got canceled after the eighth season, mid season. We didn't really get like a season finale. There were there really wasn't like a closing of a lot of the storylines. But basically, we had to see Joan work through and mourn the death of this friendship. And for me as a woman, that was really painful to watch because I do feel that in some ways losing a friendship can be more painful than losing a relationship. Um, you know, I don't know for men, but I speaking as a woman, losing losing a girlfriend, that's that's hard. That is really, really No, really I, I agree. In a lot of ways it is because at least with relationships, at least romantic ones, you can usually point to the thing that really was the breaking point for you. And it's easier to make a clean break in the sense that it was emotional and physical. You kind of just cut them off. And with, but with friends, they occupied more space in your life because it wasn't a romantic connection. It was just basically, at least for me, it was more social and, you know, um, and emotional in some ways too. And I know because I've had, you know, I've lost friends over the years for different reasons. And mm -hmm. it's, at least with relationships, it's easier to accept the end because in relationships, we kind of think that there's supposed to be a progress, a progression. If you've been dating for a couple of years, you should be getting engaged. If you're getting engaged, you should be getting married. And if you're not getting married, you kind of know, that where the relationship is or isn't going with a friendship that's there's no expectation of that you're just friends so right when that ends it's kind of like oh <laughs> you know this is yeah. kind of like it's almost like it's, a death it's like mourning yeah, a death and stuff yeah like it's yeah. this empty space that's just mm -hmm. there, that's just gone whereas at the end of a relationship you can still kind of rationalize it in your head a little bit like, okay, we just weren't compatible in this way, but you're not ever thinking about compatibility when it's just your friends. Mm 
And mm-hmm. it's usually more unexpected with friends. You know, relationships, they're more intimate. So you can kind of tell when a romantic relationship is kind of falling apart. But you kind of assume there's, there's this assumption that your friends will just always be there. So when they're not, it's a little bit jar- more jarring, I think. Right. Right. And, and you know, because the thing is, like, the beginning of episode one, we see that Issa and Molly are in this really good place. Molly comes over. They have something called Self-Care Sunday, mm-hmm. where they're doing yoga and smoking a joint. Um, <laughs> I think that's great. Right. right. <laughs> um, you know, and so, but, I mean, really, like, their friendship, I mean, if you watch the past three seasons, it really has been up and down, where they'll have these moments, you know, they'll they, they'll have these pockets of closeness where they're really good friends. And then, you know, what happens is that it's sort of like this very volatile mix because of their personalities. Uh, Molly is very outgoing. Um, She just says what's on her mind and she has no filter. Um, And then you balance that with Issa, who's someone who is kind of, who's awkward um, and is um, someone who is rather passive aggressive where she's someone, she won't really say what she's feeling. You know what I mean? And so it's sort of like, she won't say it, but she'll act in these very um, passive aggressive ways where she won't say what, and we saw that uh, with uh, the relationship she had with Lawrence. I know there's been a lot of debate about who was wrong in the relationship, Issa and Lawrence. Yes. Issa cheated on Lawrence, which is a big bad, of course, Um, you know, and then we had Lawrence who was just basically, you know, unemployed, not working. And, you know, the frustration of being sort of like the breadwinner um, of this relationship while your man is at home, not working, and you're the one who has to go every day to a job that you hate. Um, and, you know, I've always told people that I think, I feel like it's, it always takes two people to, to destroy a relationship. Um, and, you know, I feel like there are definitely things that Lawrence could have done on his side. Um, and I still say that I feel that he was, he was suffering from sort of, uh, mental depression. I think he was depressed at some point. Um, and it's kind of hard to reach out when you're in that space. Um, but then on Issa's side, I also looked at it from the point of someone who, she was passive aggressive in the way like she wasn't expressing her needs or her frustrations to her partner. You know what I mean? Because there's this idea that men should just know what, well, you know, he's my boyfriend. He's my man. He should know. No. And that, and that, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. at the heart of her problem. I think for me, her problem mm-hmm. with Molly as well, their communication is awful. They, yes. both, they both think that they're expressing how they feel, but they're mm-hmm. not. They're, they're saying mm-hmm. everything but what they're feeling, and they're just expecting the other person to pick up on what they mean. And you'll see this as it go on, goes on throughout the episode, that they both have their end the end of the season, they both mm-hmm. have their own interpretation of what the other said, even in text. Right. And you just see, they, did a, they do an amazing job of just showing the subtlety of the communication breakdown. It's not like it's a hang-up. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, when someone hangs up on you, it's a pretty clear indicator they're not talking to you. The arguments yeah. in real life happen when there's the awkward silence in the text. When when you respond in a way that's just like one word, or when you respond in a way that the other person isn't expecting, that's and they interpret it in their own way and draw their own conclusions. That's mm-hmm. where the communication breaks down. And I know that's how it is in my real life. And watching yeah. it on screen, I was like, oh, I know exactly how this goes down. This is happening because I'm 
communication-wise, I'm more like Issa. I'm more emotional. My wife, mm-hmm. my wife is more like Molly. She's a type A, and <laughs> they just say whatever comes out of their mouth. And people like me don't deal well with that at all. And I saw right. exactly. But then people like Molly really don't like people like Issa and myself who are more who don't who are afraid to say what they're what what's what they want to say because they don't want to hurt feelings. Meanwhile, Molly don't give a shit about hurting your feelings. So she really doesn't. Right. So it's, 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 that's where the clashes happen. And as a person like Issa, you kind of hope that someone would have the same care with you as you have with them. And then when you Mm -hmm. don't get that, it just makes you even more frustrated. So yeah, it's, it's a lot of that this season and boy, do they do an amazing job of, really showing they they do a good job what they say in television the seminar is show not tell you can yes. see it for yourself you could put the show on mute and watch the two of them and it becomes really clear in their text exchanges and what have you where things break down between them right yeah i i, I do feel like part of it is i think there's a certain i do feel that molly has a certain jealousy towards Condola because I think she she even looks at Condola as sort of a reflection of herself, right? And so I feel that she feels threatened by uh, Issa and Condola's, uh, Condola's closeness. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that going on. And um, speaking of Molly, <laughs> one of the storylines uh, from last week's episode that really had, that really had me laughing was um, you know, sort of like her blossoming relationship with Andrew. Uh, Andrew was um, introduced in season three, um, you know, really good looking guy. And and the thing about Andrew is that he doesn't take Molly's mess. Mm-hmm. He says exactly what he thinks. Right. He does not play mind games with her. The little mind games that Molly likes to play or control games she likes to play with the men in her life, Andrew made it very clear that he was not about that. Yeah, she when, when I spoke to Yvonne, um, she told me she, her phrase was Molly getting grown manned. <laughs> <laughs> she said Molly has never been grown manned like this, and she's right. You know, yeah. But you know, the guys she's dealt with before really were in a position, I think, where they felt they could. Like Dro mm-hmm. knew that he was already kind of getting away with more than he should. So he right. wasn't really about to try to put a quote unquote, put Molly in her place. If, even if she was wrong, because he's standing on shaky ground himself. Right. Um, but Andrew, he's fully aware of who he is, what his place is and what he wants. So he's there because he wants to be. And if, if the situation isn't to his liking, he's going to move on. <laughs> and I think Molly is not used to that from dudes who are kind of like, I'm not going to just hang around for you the way, you know? know? Yeah. Because the thing with Molly is that, and that's one of the things that I love about her because I see a lot of myself in, in, in Molly and Issa and the other female characters. And part of what I see with Molly that endears me to her, but makes me want to beat her with a blunt instrument is the way that she will low key sabotage relationships with men like we've seen this from season one where she will literally find something to nitpick 
to death mm. to basically make this guy ineligible. It's like she has walls because she has this idea of what the perfect black man is, right? It's like, she was like, this is who I want for my husband. He's got to be making this amount of money. He's got to look like this. He's got to drive this car. He's Because like, I mean, she's a successful black woman herself. And this is not saying that black women shouldn't have values, but I do feel that, and I, I'm speaking as an older woman now, it's just as you get older, you'll realize that some of the things that you think are important, some, some of the, 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 the qualities that you may think make for an ideal mate, they don't actually make you good relationship partners. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, these are the things that you could put on your resume. Right. Like, yes, I'm the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, but that does not necessarily make you a good husband. It can make you a good provider. Right. Like, as far as money, but but we all know that successful relationships, it's more, I mean, yes, it's good to have money, but it's really about having a partner who is there for you and is kind and is has an open heart and is gentle. So having a lot of money doesn't necessarily guarantee that. Um, so she's gone through life with this idea because her, you know, she had this idealized uh, picture of what her parents' relationship was like. And so she wanted that for herself. And then she's coming and then she's finding these guys. And I guess she feels that they're not up to the standard of what she likes. So I remember from the season one, remember it was that guy who worked at the car rental company she was nitpicking about that. And then, you know, uh, there was an episode where he confided, confided to her that he had actually had sex with another man. Right. And that was the camel. <laughs> that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And she was like, yep, this is the thing that's going to disqualify him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah. And then um, I remember Lil Rel was on their season. Was it season two? Phil was season two. He played a lawyer to the, in that black law firm that she moved to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that he was really cool. Lil Rel's character. I thought he was really cool. I liked him. I told you that he kind of had like that mega church pastor swag. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he was very funny and sarcastic and the way he and Molly sparked with each other. I thought, Oh, okay. This, this is a, this is potential, right? Like he's a lawyer, he's educated. He's like, kind of like checking off all the boxes on Molly's list and then I forget what happened. That didn't work out. I don't know if it was a I performance. Did, I can't I remember what it was, but I knew it wasn't going to last because it was Little Rel. And they tipped it. No, they tipped no. It. no, I love Little Rel, but I just knew that he ain't going to be a regular on this show. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, no, yeah. he's too high profile. He's a, but he's going to be right. here for at least for like one or two episodes tops. And then he's gone. Mm-hmm. So right. I didn't put any, <laughs> I didn't put any, um, stock in that relationship panning out at all yeah and so and then it went from there and then dro which was that was a whole mess because we knew that dro was married mm-hmm. uh that she he was a childhood friends of molly he was literally like the boy next door um and you know but he was married um and and then they, said that he had an open relationship that was yeah. it, i don't think it was ever confirmed because we mm. Yeah, I do know that there was a scene in one episode where he had spent the night at Molly's house, his phone rang, and it seemed that he was talking to his wife and he was like, yeah, I'm at Molly's. So it there was it there was a um, a hint 
that the that the wife was aware of his relationship with Molly. I would have liked me personally, because I, I do like the idea that they introduced this idea of um, the concept of open marriage, right? Or uh, particularly in a black uh, couple or in the black community, uh, because we know there are a lot of black couples who are leading um, alternative lifestyles. Right. Let's say that. Right. Um, you know what I mean? You think they're they're monogamous and they're out at swimmer parties. You know what I mean? Like, or they have like boyfriends and girlfriends, or they're in a triad. Like, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things going on right now that are opening up in in black marriages and relationships. But I would have appreciated a scene between Molly and the wife. We did see them at a party once, and they were kind of awkward with each other. Right. Um, but I would have liked a scene where the two of them were actually talking to each other because that would have been kind of revolutionary, right? Yeah. Where it's like it, Molly's not the mistress. This is a consensual relationship that her husband is having with another woman. I mean, that would have gotten people talking and that would have been controversial for sure. But I, I would have liked to see what that could have looked like or what that conversation could have been. It would have been like. brilliant, but we know that would have still been the, the reason mm-hmm. for Molly to leave because I think knowing Molly as a character, the honesty mm-hmm. would have been too much for her. She's like, oh, I can't take this. Wait a minute. You're okay with this? I think there was a part of her that would have been fine with it being a traditional affair where the wife yes. didn't know. If the wife wow. knew, that would have just made it, I think, a little a bridge too far for her, to be honest. At, at least that's how I would have wrote it. Like Molly, right. like yo, this is too much honesty for me. I can't deal because mm-hmm. I think that's how <laughs> so there are a lot of people out there who I mm-hmm. think would be kind of bugged out by the openness and not know how to deal with that. Um, they're right. just, they're they're much e- it's much easier for them to deal with the secret. I think I've seen people tweet as much like mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather he just cheat on me. I don't want to be in an open relationship. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's just too much. It's too much for them. So yeah, yeah. So so that so then we see that this concept of an open relationship is is revisited in last week's episode, where you know we we see Molly is continuing to date Andrew, um, and, and we see a scene where Andrew and Molly are in a car. They're on their way to Issa's um, mixer to get sponsors for her block party, and there's. Uh, this conversation where Molly is asking Andrew, um, you know, can we hang out Friday night? And Andrew was like, ah, well, can we make it another night? Because I have plans on Friday. And that turns into the reveal where Andrew is very open with Molly. And he's like, yeah, she was like, oh, do you have a date? She, she was joking sarcastically, but I think she was probing. Um, And he was like, yeah. And Andrew was like, he owned it. He was like, oh, I'm seeing other people, aren't you? And that just causes Molly's panties <laughs> just twisted. She's just so salty. So she gets to Issa's mixer and she's just like where her pout face and just being, you know, very childish, just basically th- throwing a tantrum on the inside. And then, you know, Andrew, she basically tells Andrew, I think Andrew wants to leave. Clearly he wants to spend time with Molly. He was like, you know, let's, let's go, let's hang out. Mm. And she was like, no, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm going to stay here and help um, Issa or whatever you can. And he's like, okay, well I'll take an Uber home. And I was just like, this is a perfect scene of you not saying what you want exactly. or not, or, or saying, or just being, or owning the fact that you are bothered that he is seeing other people. Clearly you are bothered by that. But because Molly is prideful, and she doesn't want to look like she's sweating or sweating him or whatever. Or she's thirsty. She would just rather 
just push him away. And I'm like, oh, here she goes. <laughs> yeah, it, it leads to the, the, the new relationships are always foiled by this because mm-hmm. each party, each participant is dealing with different assumptions about what's happening if nothing is spelled out. Um, yes. Some people feel like, well, once we've slept together, we're exclusive. Or once we've, mm-hmm. you know, gone out a couple of times and you haven't mentioned anybody else, we must be exclusive. Or other people feel like, well, if we haven't made anything exclusive, the assumption is that we're open or that I'm dating other people until we're not, until I'm not. And it's hard in the beginning to have those conversations without sounding either needy or controlling because you're yes. just getting to know the person. You two of you have just mm-hmm. met and all of a sudden you want to, you, if you're the one that kind of lays down the ground rules, you look like you're the one that's kind of just like not fun. And everybody likes it to be fun and light in the beginning. You know, we're just getting to learn each learn each other. We're going out. We're having a good time. I, let's not ruin it with the conversation of what are we doing after like the first date. So Molly, I could see where she was like, oops, I just kind of assumed that we were exclusive. But I realized, you know what? We have we never said that. So I'm not going to say anything because he's working under a different assumption. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was that was a perfect example of not she was being passive aggressive. That is when Molly was being passive aggressive. And yeah, that's that's a hard one because, yeah, it's like when you start dating somebody, there has to be that conversation. You can't make the assumption as much as you like that person or you might be feeling the person you guys are vibing. It's easy to assume that you're the only person that they're seeing. Um and yeah, I, I I do think that there has to be that conversation. If you want to be exclusive, you want to be monogamous, that has to be asked. Like that, yeah. there has to be a conversation about that. Yeah. Like I know a lot of people just fall into it, right? Like they start dating each other and then they move in and uh, move in together. And then of course, what's interesting is like when I talk to some of my friends who've experienced that, you know, they were like, yeah, my girlfriend, she just stayed over and she never it started where it was like she stayed for the weekend then she stayed a couple of days and then she got an overnight draw and then she got a key to the apartment and then, mm. you know what I mean and then it, it kind of escalates but then it's like but I never asked it. and th- it could be the reverse too, gender reverse where it's like you know the boyfriend moves in and the, you know like but there has to be a conversation like you can't just move into somebody's space mm-hmm. or even the idea of having a monogamous relationship because number one you have to even know if the person is monogamous in the first place like mm-hmm. that is the huge assumption and so clearly andrew and i really appreciate the writers of insecure um like andrew's character is very fascinating to me because you know particularly um in their depiction, a depiction of Asian American men in on TV and film. Um, Andrew is somebody where he is just like, he's not fetishized. He's not a stereotype. He's not a trope. Like he is fly. He's got swag. Like he's clearly not bothered. And clearly his dance full is, is, is his dance guard is full. Right. You know what I mean? Like this is not a guy staying home on the weekends, you know, at wondering all, what's up. at all, at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so he has this confidence about him. And I think the thing with Andrew is that he knows his worth. Like he knows what he's bringing to the table. Um, and I was like, but Molly, isn't this what you've been looking for? Like, I just kind of, but I feel like she's still sort of in her head. She's still battling this perception because I think a lot of her perception of the ideal 
man for her is that he was supposed to be black. Mm. So I think there's there's still maybe an underlying like he doesn't look like how I thought it would be like because then there has to be the I don't know I haven't seen the the rest of the episodes yet but I'm interested to know if there's going to be a conversation about that at one point like about his race know. yeah about his race I like if they I don't like having kids or oh yeah. I don't yeah I, mean, I don't want to spoil anything but the co- mm-hmm. oh, the only time I recall his race coming up was with her friends you know that that yeah it's, it's, oh with Asian Bay yeah, yeah it's in the trailer. <laughs> Yeah, they yeah. call him Asian Bay, and in the trailer, mm-hmm. I think Kelly makes some reference to a samurai sword and how he's slaying her down or whatever. But that's oh it. <laughs> I mean, I think they did better to not make his race that big an issue, at least in the first, oh, no, I agree. first five yeah. episodes. It's a, it's a non-issue. It's really more about their mm-hmm. expectations and how they maneuver. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my apologies, because I watched all the first five episodes so i don't want i don't want to say too much because i can't yeah. remember what was in which episode it's all one big episode to me right now mm-hmm, but i will mm-hmm. say that andrew and molly definitely um get some adulting on when it comes to their relationship and really going head up about what their expectations are and i think with molly in particular mm-hmm. and what i've observed with my own friends and even myself to agree is we 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 walk around with this backpack full of rules that we don't even get to apply half the time when it comes to yeah. for relationships so she mm-hmm. has all these assumptions that she hasn't even put into practice yet to see if they even work so andrew mm-hmm. like you said is this kind of uncharted territory for 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 her and yeah. i really love what they do with the two of them and in, in pushing her to actually mm-hmm. stop being passive aggressive and saying what she wants you know yeah, I I think he challenges her in a good way. I don't think he's being difficult for the sake of uh, for the sake of being difficult. I think he's making. I like. I think good relationships. Um, sometimes your partners have to make you uncomfortable, right? Uh-huh. Because we, you know, we're coming in with baggage from our past relationships, and we like things a certain way. But sometimes those certain ways aren't exactly good. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And sometimes we have to let go of certain toxic behaviors. And so I feel like a good relationship is when both partners challenge each other, where it's like, well, how can we make ourselves better people? Um, I there's this podcast that I listen to, and one of the hosts always says that it's a relationship podcast. And she was like, ultimately, the test of a good relationship is am I a better person in this relationship? Mm. Right. And if it's bringing out the worst in me, this is not a place that I need to be at. If it's, if it's not bringing out the best version of yourself, mm. then that's a relationship that you might need to let go. Mm. And I think that's whether friendship or whatever. So I have a feeling when whatever we see transpires between Issa and Molly, I think it's going to be in the vein of that is like, are we seeing the best versions of themselves mm-hmm. um, you know, when they in their friendships and their interactions with each other? Or is this a friendship that needs to, you know, kind of dies maybe maybe it's for a season so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll we'll have to see so um we're gonna move on to uh <laughs> discussing um the new netflix series uh the creator and executive producer kenya barris who you may know behind uh, america's next top model um he is also the creative of uh, the creator of blackish um, the spinoff uh, Grownish, which is on the ABC Family Channel, and then also Mixedish, which premiered last year uh, with Tika Sumter. Um, and so it's basically uh, Mixedish is about Rainbow, 
uh, the wife from Blackish, sort of like a flashback of her childhood being the product of an interracial marriage and just kind of navigating that those identities as she's growing up as a teenager. Um, so the new series is called Black as Fuck, and the hashtag is B-L-A-C-K-A-F. Um, but this is my podcast, so I can say fuck. So, <laughs> Ooh, I'm um, telling. Let me stop. I know, right? <laughs> so um, of interest, when the show was first announced, or let's go back a little bit. We knew that the show, we knew that uh, Kenya Barris had, had uh, you know, had a, a huge uh, fight with ABC. And so he left ABC, I think about a year and a half ago and um, got this really sweet deal with Netflix production deal with Netflix. And so the first uh, offering from his production uh, deal with Netflix is this series um, in black as fuck. Basically Kenya is playing himself. You could kind of think of it as like the Bernie Mac show or curb your enthusiasm or the Larry Sanders show where you have this person, this, this actual celebrity playing themselves um, on a show. And so while he is playing himself, he has a fictionalized um, portrayal of his wife, who is played by Rashida Jones. Uh, her name is Joya. Um, and also in real life, uh, Kenya Barris has six children. He has three boys, three girls that are also reflected in the show. Um, and so <laughs> uh, when the show was the first promo pictures for this show dropped in December on social media, uh, the original title of the show was called Black Excellence. Yes. And then we saw the cast picture. <laughs> uh, and maybe it was a day. No, it was a weekend. It was a whole mm-hmm. last weekend on Twitter because he got dragged so bad. I was like, I felt the I felt the burn from over here. I was just like, wow, I'm that. You know what I mean? I mean, there were there were a couple of conversations going on here. Mm-hmm. One of them was the, one of the major criticisms that people have had about Kenya Barris. It was sort of like, okay, you have blackish, which is actually based on his life. Um, you know, in blackish, we have a well-to-do black family. Anthony a- Anderson plays the father, Dre, who's like the successful marketing executive and his wife, uh, who's played by Tracy Ellis Ross is a mixed race woman, much like Tr- uh, Tracy Ellis Ross in real life. And uh, she plays uh, Rainbow, who is a successful anesthesiologist. And they have one, two, three. Is it five children? Yes, five children. Um, and just, you know, and then the grandparents are there. And so it just kind of felt like, OK, well, we already have blackish. So with black as fuck, it was sort of like, why are you repeating what you already did there? With blackish, and so with black as fuck, I I'm gonna read it as it's supposed to be like a satire, right? Mm-hmm. Clearly, he's playing himself as a, a fictionalized version of himself, so to speak, and you know he has his wife and his children, um, and just sort of like this rich, successful black family in the entertainment world, right? And, in Hollywood, now. Going back to when Black Excellence, when it was originally titled Black Excellence, one of the criticisms was that. Kenya Barris seems to have a certain fascination with mixed race <laughs> or interracial couples. Um, and, and, you know, there were also, there was also this conversation about him being uh colorist. Right. Um, and, you know, 
except for mixed dish mixed dish uh the the lead actress is tika samta who is a darker skinned black actress um but between blackish and grownish uh that's the spinoff of their daughter the blackish daughter that goes to college there was this idea that they're really wasn't that many there weren't that many darker skinned or browner skinned women and that there seems to be a fascination where he keeps trying to tell the same story of mixed race families right um so now that the show came out when we finally got the trailer they retitled it black as fuck right b-l-a-c-k-a-f right um the trailer came out the show dropped on netflix on friday <sighs> yeah, I watched all eight episodes, but let, let's hear your opinion first, Jerry. Let me hear what you thought. Oh, uh, well, my, when I saw the trailer, I was definitely getting vibes of, you know, like you said, Kirby enthusiasm and runs house. Like there's this rich guy, you've got this big family, but there was this kind of self-deprecating humor that was going on. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. And then I watched it and I wasn't sure who it was for. Because like Blackish, it might be intended for everyone, but it felt like it was more for white folks who really were looking for a peek into Black culture. Um, and this felt very much like that to me from Jump. So when I actually spoke with Kenya, I asked him a couple of things along those lines. First, why he changed the title. And his official answer was that he felt like Black as Fuck sounded funnier and that he, um, you know, he wanted to be unapologetic in the blackness. So whatever the thing, he says, now the idea is that whatever your thing is, the highest vibration of what that is, ver- is the version that people are responding to. It wasn't that we were saying this is the only version of blackness. This is this character's version of blackness. This is from the mm-hmm. interview. He said, this family is trying to live their life as out loud as possible. And that's what we want this show to be about. I don't know. I <laughs> I feel like they might have course corrected when they saw the response of Black Excellence. Um, I agree. <laughs> and decided to go in a different direction because I think some people forgot that this was that same show. Um, right. Like, wait a minute. Hold on. Where where'd the Black Excellence show go? Oh, this is that Black Excellence show. And, yeah. you know, the other criticism is that Blackish, you know, is for white people. And I asked him about that as well. And he said, well, this show is for everyone, just the same way Blackish is, is really for everybody. He just wanted to do a more aggressive Black family show than he could have done on network television. So he, mm-hmm. it feels like Kenya has this model that he's constantly reshaping to give you different versions of the same thing. Because he even he makes a, a comment or joke about him being a quote-unquote one-trick pony in the first episode. And I asked him, about, so he, he basically took away the shots that anything you could, could have criticized him about, he kind of mm-hmm. put out there for you yeah. before you could. And it may or may not work, um, depending on the person watching. But, you know, even the joke where Tim's story says that black is, you know, blackish is for white people. He was like, yeah, I, I laughed at that. I wrote that. You know, he wrote that joke for Tim's story. Um, right. So I understand it, but um, he really feels like Blackish is for everybody, and the same way this show is "quote unquote" for everybody. But I watched it, and I didn't feel like this show was for Black folks. I felt like this was a show for White folks who wanted to see how rich Black folk lived, and 
you know, that's, that's, that's the impression I got. Mm, yeah. Um, oh my, <laughs> um, number one, can we talk about the fact that, so there's eight episodes in this first season, right? And the titles of each of the episode have slavery in it. So episode one is because of slavery. Episode two, because of slavery two. Episode three, still because of slavery. Uh, episode four, yep, you guessed it again. This is because of slavery. Episode five, yo, between you and me. this. So basically there everything is because of slavery, which I get it. It's a joke. Ha ha ha. You know what I mean? Um, whatever. But, you know, I, and I said this, um, the thing with Black as Fuck is that it really, there's a lot of feelings going on. If you follow the hashtag, there's been an ongoing discussion about um, Black as Fuck and it actually trended and we'll have to talk about that right. um, in a few minutes. Um, the thing with me is like, I really wasn't even... I wasn't even offended by this show. It was just, it was boring. It was just mm. boring to me and unfunny, uh, which I think is worse. Because at least if you're if you're controversial, well, I, I described it as a controversial just because of the conversations we've been having around the show. But the show itself, I mean, it just, I think for a show that's supposed to be about satire, right? So basically you're trying to talk about blackness. And I just felt like his approach his approach to race and his racial analysis or racial critique, which is part of his, you know, pony show, right? Because mm. Blackish, if you watch Blackish, it's always, this is an aspect of Blackness. And then there's always a segment in the show where it goes into like this exposition of back in 1845. Right. Blah, blah, blah. The exposition was what was driving me crazy and black as fuck. Cause I, I told him, I said, that's what made me question who you're making this show for, because you're putting in yes. things that, you know, the average black person would know. And he's like, well, he pushed back a little bit saying that the average, you'd be surprised at what the average black person, you know, doesn't know you as a journalist may know certain things, but not necessarily, Mm -hmm. but other people wouldn't know. So he feels like he's informing black people as well. But for me, the language didn't feel like someone who was speaking to a peer or to someone they loved. It looked like they were still speaking to a stranger. So if you were talking to black folk, you have a real distance with black folk that needs mm-hmm. to be addressed because this show does not feel intimate. This show did not feel like it was embracing um, blackness as much as it was standing adjacent to it. You know, wow. it, 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 there's a difference yeah. between standing next to somebody and saying, this is my friend and you putting your arm around them. It felt mm-hmm. like this, this didn't feel like he was, in, you know, putting his arm around blackness at all. He may feel like he was, but I didn't get that from what I saw on the screen. Right. Because I remember there was a series like going back to that that joke that <laughs> that was to me was one of the funniest scenes uh, throughout the whole series uh, is when uh, this is episode five, where the theme of the show where basically episode five is about Kenya reconciling his relationship as a black creative with critics or yes. specifically white critics. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then that includes a cameo from Tyler Perry, where he goes to visit Tyler Perry to kind of talk to him about, you know, like, how do you feel about, um, you know, film reviews or, you know, TV reviews or any, anything that critics, white critics are writing about your show. And 
I have to admit that I wasn't mad at what Tyler Perry no, said. No, I wasn't he, honestly either. I actually liked it. Tyler was like, what kind of father are you? You curse in front of your child like this? Yeah. Because you know, yeah. most of the criticism throughout the show is him of his wife being a bad mother. And he's blind. And he's blind to how horrible a father he is. And <laughs> his daughter is, you know, doing this documentary, exposing mm-hmm. them both. And she's telling him how bad they are. They're getting high on Molly at concerts and god knows what else yeah they're really bad parents but you never see him kind of embrace or even try to process her critiques of him it's kind of like well i'm here i pay all the bills so you guys are just gonna have to put up with me is what it felt like yeah which is interesting because you're more interested about the critiques of total strangers about your work than what your daughter is actually telling you, mm-hmm. like critiquing you right. about like what's going on in your family house, which I, I guess that's probably what they were going for. But um, yeah, so Tyler's, uh, you know, in his in his discussion to Kenyon, that speech is basically like, fuck critics. I don't care what critics think. I make my show or, you know, for a, a specific demographic, I have a niche. Right. Um, I have this underserved uh, community of moviegoers and that's who I'm writing for. I'm writing for them. I'm not writing. And and I actually appreciated that because I was like, maybe if Kenya adopted some of that into his writing, because I remember in the first episode, they it was this recurring joke of the white gaze. Right. Where he and his wife are like, oh, I hate white people or whatever. And then it's sort of like this thing where it's the white gays this and the white gays that. And um, we do know that there was a a, a study or um, there was a report from the Nielsen, from Nielsen um, in 2017. And they said that Blackish was watched by almost 70% of non-Black people. So that's including white people, Latino people, Asian people, whatever. And I was like, I remember when that report first came out and I was shocked and I was like, wow, a show called Blackish and most of Black America is not even watching. <laughs> like, like if I was a Black creative, like I would, like my feelings would be hurt. Like I'd be oh. like, well, damn, like what's going on with that? You know what I mean? And so, um, yeah. And so, you know, going forward to that joke that Tim story makes about mm-hmm. <laughs> blackish being for 55 year olds, white women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and of course, like you said, Kenya wrote that episode. So really he was flaming himself. Right. So, so there's this interesting thing where like in the show, Kenya's basically like roasting himself yeah. and dragging himself, which I would have appreciated. And this is where I tell people, I think this <coughs> is the problem with black as fuck um it as to for me why the show doesn't succeed is we've seen shows where we have celebrities play awful versions of themselves right like just um like a great example is uh that netflix rom-com always be my maybe right Mm. and uh keanu reeves makes a guest appearance right and he plays like this very self-centered fake woke person right Mm -hmm. but the thing is the reason why we could laugh at this performance of of keanu is at the end of the day we know keanu's really not like that Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because by all accounts you have never heard this you have never heard anything negative about him throughout this whole me too and times up campaign i have yet to hear an actress or any woman working in the industry saying hey keanu you know, raped me or sexually harassed me or whatever. Like he has like the most pristine um, reputation in Hollywood. Like right. one of the most, 
pristine. Like you never, like he's the most chill person. You'll see videos of him like taking like trail race buses and stuff. I think it was, <laughs> like he was at a bus station and people were asking him for directions and he really, you know, stood there and showed them how to do it. And he goes to the library to like rent books. Like what? Who is this person? You know, like he's just like this very chill person. So when you saw him playing this awful version of himself on Always Be My Maybe, we could laugh comfortably because we know at the end of the day, that's not really who Keanu is. Right. I think problem with black as fuck is that at least i'm speaking for me and other people who may share the same opinion i really couldn't get comfortable laughing at some of kenya's behaviors and actions because i was like i'm not sure how much of that is really you right yeah i agree i agree there was you there was no distance or separation um you couldn't suspend belief because you weren't sure if he was really joking because right. he's commenting on real life things and you're like, and it comes from not knowing who he is. Ultimately, mm-hmm. you're going to get either a really bad first impression of Kenya Barris or you're going to get a really bad first impression of Kenya Barris. <laughs> because yeah. if you don't know him, if you only know mm-hmm. him from Blackish and you watch this show, you're like, who is this egomaniacal chain wearing, calling his wife's names guy? And if you yeah. already knew him and thought poorly of him, this just confirms everything you mm-hmm. already thought there's no redeeming quality to him in this show so i don't right. know if i'd be putting this out there as supposed to be me and my life and my and my wife because i guess if they do a season two didn't i think he divorced his wife last year in so, real life in yeah, real life definitely. so mm-hmm. i wonder if how that will be dealt with if they do do another season of this particular show because he's got right. he's got committed to like how many more with netflix Mm, I forget. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess that he's going to have an automatic season two renewal. I think there's, you know, with, with Netflix, I don't even think they care if there's like negative reviews. They're like, as long as you're watching, yeah. as long as you're engaging, and as long as you're talking about the show. And but yeah, it's like I'm not saying let me be clear. I'm not saying that Kenya is actually this awful person Mm -hmm. that we're seeing black as fuck. What I'm saying is that for the for a lot of viewers, we're not sure where the line ends. Right. We're not sure what is his authentic self and which parts of him are exaggerated. We're not sure. And part of that has to do with the fact that his engagement with. I'm going to speak to social media, his engagement with black people on social media has not exactly been the best. So there right. is a, there's actually been like a loss of confidence. Let me say that. Mm-hmm. There's been a sort of like a, a, a trust issue, right? Because going back to December when it was first released as Black Excellence with the picture and people were having these <coughs> discussions about colorism, um, he came on Twitter, I think it was like Monday morning because people started talking about it on Friday and then he came on Twitter like on Sunday or Monday and he was like really in his feelings. Oh. And he was just, he said something to the effect of how colorism is just a construct of white supremacy. And, and then this is where he really pissed people off is that he was like, well, you guys... Um, you guys are talking about, you know, how I cast my show, how I cast this show. And, you know, you think that I have to fulfill a certain quota, right. To Mm. create black family when it's, and I was just like, Oh no, sir. Why did you do that? Like you just already said that it's a fictional black character. It's a fictional black character, uh, family. So therefore, if you are the creator of the show and you have creative control, you can make the move. You can make this family look however you like. And, and let me be specific about here. 
there was no reason. And this is not a knock against Rashida Jones. I mean, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Uh-huh. I'm just saying, based on what the show is about, really, you could have cast Gabrielle Union as your wife. Whoa. There really was nothing tying you to actually casting because you already have that on Blackish. You already have that representation on Blackish where Tracy Ellis is supposed to be a stand-in for your wife, right? So with this show, with Black as Fuck, will it would it have really changed the landscape of that show or what it was you were trying to say with the show if you had cast a browner skin or darker skin wife? Well, and- he couldn't have made the jokes about her that he made. Um, about right. her being mixy or mixed. What he, when the when his black family? It's funny he yeah. had to say when his black family came over. That tell, that tells you a lot right there. When his when, when his when his family comes to visit and he's hiding his tablets in the dryer and she's like, "What are you doing?" And he tells mm-hmm. her that, "Oh, you're so um, what white was, or something like that no, or something." That, you're yeah. so you're you're so beige. Something to the fact of you're not you're not really black. Basically, is what he was telling her. And you couldn't oh, really wow. make that claim with a Gabrielle Union in that role. Um, yeah. So so I, that goes back, but that circles back to like your the people's criticism of his fixation with well, biracial, having biracial women in lead roles or, I don't know. All I'm saying is I was just looking at that. Like, I think it was episode six mm-hmm. where, and actually episode six was actually the only Really, five and six are the only episodes that I really liked. Episode six I liked because it actually had nothing to do with race. Mm. This was really about the power dynamics between himself and his wife mm-hmm. because we understand that uh, Joya was the breadwinner, so to speak, while Kenya was starting his creative co- career. She was a very successful lawyer. She made a lot of money. And then when Kenya you know, got up in the ranks in Hollywood, there was this agreement mm-hmm. that she would kind of spend more, you know, stay home and spend more time with the children while he went out, you know, slaying dragons in Hollywood, so to speak. And now she's kind of shifting her career where she wants to be an author and kind of whatever. And so this this idea of, you know, who's really the breadwinner, who's really the head of the, the household. And so I, I really appreciated that episode. I like that one because it didn't have anything to do with race. Because um, I think any couple can go through that. But... That being said, yeah, episode six, um, Nia Long guest stars as uh, Joya's publicist, yeah. right? The white publicist. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at Nia Long and I'm like, as long, do y'all know who Nia Long is? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I was just sitting there like, wait a minute, you got this woman playing a guest star opposite Rashida Jones. Okay, girl, I was like, no, 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 you're not, not going to play my face like this. No. He stacked that I guest cast. The, the, the guest appearances did. were pretty stacked. Like, how did he you did, get these though. folks to just show up and pop up for a couple minutes and leave? I don't know. Right. But I was just like, but why couldn't Nia Long have been the wife in this in this show? Do you, do you get what I'm saying with this? It was just sort of like, there's so many other Black actresses that you could have sought to make your wife, again, you're saying this is fictionalized. It's not a documentary, right? So if it's not a documentary, honestly, you could have cast anybody to be your wife and you could have cast other, you know, whatever. Again, not knocking Rashida Jones. I'm just asking the question, why did it have to be that when you already had that representation in Blackish? We know Blackish is based on your real life. And so it was like, so you, you, I mean, I have to ask the question, does, fictional Kenya Barris not even want to be with a black, like a darker skinned black woman. That's what I'm thinking. Like, 
You know what I mean? Like, uh, is it that awful that, yes, you're playing yourself and yes, you have to get another lighter skinned uh, woman to play your wife? It's fiction. It's fiction. Of course, Gabrielle Union could have played your wife. Of course, Nia Long or Sanaa Lathan or any of these other black actresses could have played your wife or Regina King. Um, not Regina King. Uh, Regina Hall. Mm-hmm. These are really like Regina Hall, Gabrielle Union. Like these are actresses, black actresses that have excellent comedic timing. Um, and I could see Gabrielle going toe to toe with Kenya, but maybe Kenya didn't want that heat. I don't know. And so Gabrielle <laughs> you know had I mean? great comedic timing too. She would have been perfect for something like this. That's what I'm saying. So it's just sort of like, okay. Um, but let's talk about the controversy of Black as Fuck. Because what it seemed to me was the co- the the conversation or the actual controversy around Black as Fuck wasn't so much focused on the show, mm. so much as the casting of Rashida Jones as his wife, right? Because it became this whole discussion on Twitter and, and Rashida Jones was trending. like nationwide for like hours okay not even black as fuck Regina Jones was trending (laughs) and it was just this back and forth battle uh, with people who were just like uh Rashida Jones this show is called black as fuck uh originally called black excellence what the hell is Rashida Jones doing (laughs) like that was that was the question that was being asked that was a really silly question though to me like how are you gonna be asking like if you're if you're in this if you're in this sphere where you're talking mm-hmm. about a Kenya Barris show, you should know who right. Rashida Jones is and who her father is. And your question is just making you look like you're just as disconnected from the black community as you're claiming Kenya Barris is. That's right. how I felt with that particular mm-hmm. specific crit- criticism of 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 um, Rashida Jones. Like, oh, right. it's black as fuck. Why is she in this show? Like, what are you talking about? Like, she now, if you want to talk about her career choices in terms of blackness, that's mm-hmm. the conversation that's worth having to me because I can't imagine Rashida Jones had ever being in a movie called Black as Fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> you look at her IMDb, there is very little traces of anything that's overtly black. You know, right? So it's like I know she did like some Dave Chappelle uh, show skits, yeah, right? The Chappelle show and Jay Z and Beyonce videos are the blackest things that Rashida Jones has ever Rashida Jones has ever done before Black as Fuck. So I and then she was a, she was in that Aaliyah video, uh, More Than a Woman. Yeah, um, video. It was her Kadada. Yeah, had like little cameos so there or whatever. It, it begs the question as to how all of a sudden this person who was pretty much avoided, you know, anything remotely black up to mm-hmm. this point is now in a show called black as fuck you know and <laughs> yeah so that that's where i think that particular criticism is valid mm-hmm. but not on her not not questioning rashida jones blackness or her mm-hmm. her her the reason why her being in a black label show is odd to folks is or at least to me is because of her career choices up to now it has nothing to okay. do with her her skin tone her phenotype mm. or her ethnicity that's not that's what it is like what well, because if you you could we were talking about this before you compare her to a, a maya rudolph who has had a similar track in terms of ro- films and roles but she has made specific distinctions to have like a black parent and bridesmaids and other things like that the other differentiator is on snl she will play black women she'll play browner skin or darker skin black women without you know 
batting an mm-hmm. eyelash, she'll do a great Beyonce. Um, right. So I think that's a big differentiator between her and Rashida Jones. Um, right. But yeah, I, I think in terms of this, sh- I, I, the bigger thing for me is we just didn't need this show. You've already proven, <laughs> you've already proven up until now that you have a story that's resonated with people. Fine. There's other stories that can be told, and you are in a position where you can tell so many different types. Now we don't need another Will and Jada. We already have Red Table Talk. We don't need we, we don't need this particular show right now. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, you know, and that, right. that's, that's, that's my biggest gripe. You have all this power and influence and you want to do, you have a clean slate. You said the networks were keeping you from doing stuff that was gritty. Great. So now you got the gloves off, you can go in and then you do a warmed over version of the other show. Like, come on. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can do, I mean, you can definitely do better than that. My favorite part was him talking to his peers and the conversation they had. Um, and then later on, they, he, he sits on a panel with Lena Waithe and this, this presumptuous, um, uh, film director is talking about the Mm -hmm. ending to his film. And while I was watching it, it made me think of Queen and Slim. So I'd actually ask Kenya like, yo, were y'all kind of sideways commenting on the reaction to Queen and Slim? He's like, no, no, no. This was shot way before Queen and Slim was out and it has nothing to do with Queen and Slim. Because I was talking, but he said, it's oh, that's a good example of why we should be able to critique each other's work. Um, right. Because I talked to him, about, I, I mentioned that my friend, this rapper, Mad Skills, had a very strong reaction to Queen and Slim in the ending when it came out, so much so that he actually got to speak to Lena and they were, but he was texting me flaming hot at the end. Yeah. He's like, how can you do this to black people? Da, 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 right. da, da, da. He was going off. And Kenya defended right. him. Kenya said, it's, we should be able to have people... He, he feels like maybe he did it to get some attention, but at the same time, why can't he have an opinion that's contrary, that doesn't um, go along with what everybody else is saying? But he said, we should be able to do it respectfully. So yeah. that all seemed kind of interesting considering his interactions with people on Twitter. Cause I asked him how he feels about his relationship with critics. And he told me he feels like for the most part, he has a good relationship with critics. And I said, well, you know, but you've had some spirited conversations with, you know, um, folks on Twitter. I didn't want to specify black. Um, it was black. It was, black. I'll specify it. It was a black woman. <laughs> right. Um, I believe it was Nicole Perkins and she did a, she was doing recaps mm-hmm. of blackish. I think it was for Vulture. I don't remember, but it was a specific episode. She did a recap. Like her recap is, it's a recap, but it's also a critique or whatever. Mm-hmm. But she did it for this specific episode of blackish and Kenya engaged her on Twitter. Like he was upset. He was like, well, why would you write this about my show? And I read the review. It, really wasn't negative like mm-hmm. and even if it was what are you doing like i was just sort of like um you have how many hundreds of thousands of followers on twitter and then you're like i feel like you know that's something we'll have to talk in another episode is like this mm-hmm. dynamic of filmmakers or black black creatives who have like a lot of followers and a lot of influence on social media and then I write a review, an honest critique of either your film or your show, and then you're going to like 
battle me and just be like, no, you're wrong. And it's like, no, that's not how it works, sir. You put out the art. I critique the art. And let's just and just let's just walk. Let's just let's just you know what I mean. And so it was just sort of like, okay, so Kenya, you already have a history of like engaging black critics, you know, who may who you may you may feel are critiquing you. So I watching that episode, you know, the episode five, I was just kind of side eyeing him, like, okay, I guess we have short memories here, right? Um, you know what I mean? And then, and we've seen this. We have also seen this. I'm not going to mention this filmmaker. It was a certain filmmaker who made a, mo- a movie a couple of years ago, and it was a Black woman critic that was critiquing the depiction oh, of the Black I woman. <laughs> and it turned into a thing. And it turned into a thing. And it was just like, okay. Um, I had my own feelings on that. I feel like when I write uh, my critiques. I've done my job. I got my check. I do what I have to do. Like I'm not really going to sit here and battle you as a filmmaker or a creative as to why I did not like it. Like you're not going to change my mind. You can give me some insight, you know what I mean, or some context to what you meant. But then there's that other conversation of intent versus impact. You might have intended to do something when you wrote that or shot that screen, but the way I receive it hits me different then you didn't do your job. That's how I feel. It's like, if, if you're saying, well, I this is what I meant by this scene, but then if I watch it and that's not how I felt, that's it's, it's really not anybody's fault, but it's just, that's the thing with art. Art is subjective. You yeah, know what I, I mean? So I find why, that I, yeah. Black entertainers, they want, they want Blacks marketing from Black writers. They don't want- Yes, criti- they do. They don't want criticism. They, they right. want you to talk about their film. They don't want you to talk about it in a in any way, they would make people not want to go see it. So yeah. you're stuck. Yeah. And, and if you cross a line and people mm-hmm. ask, well, why can't Black critics be more critical? I think Kirk was talking about this on Twitter. We can't mm-hmm. be because you don't know how many times I've gotten emails or seen emails sent to higher ups about things that are written on any website from BET, from the Urban Daily, any Black-owned media company where I worked. Um, there was always the potential backlash from talent and when you are a black entertainment entity, you are dependent on access to these people mm-hmm. for your business. So you can't be as, as as honest or critical as the Hollywood Reporter. I don't know how they're able they're able to work out this balancing trick, but they're not held to the same standard as black entity. If if oh, a, because it's because it's it's white access and it's like they're more forgiving i'll I'll notice that black creatives and and uh whether actor director they're more forgiving if say the hollywood reporter gives out a negative review of a black film than as say if the griot writes in it or shadow and act right because ultimately they're not trying to mess up that relationship with hollywood reporter which really speaks to how they really value black media versus mainstream media right i tried to address Um, that one time with on, with mm-hmm. The Rock, because there was this really scathing review of mm-hmm. a movie from The Rock on The Hollywood Reporter, and he went at the dude, and t- and I said, and I because I quote tweeted it and said, it's bugged that you could write something like this about The Rock and still get access to him as a company, and he said mm-hmm. this guy will never have access to me, and and I and I, I held back from responding because I don't want to lose my mm-hmm. job, um, right, <laughs> but. You know, that's not the point. The point is you're you're singling him out 
Whereas if mm-hmm. that was BET, you'd have called Scott Mills and said, Scott Mills, your writer, Jerry Barrow, said something crazy about me. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have held me responsible as the writer. You would have gone right over my head. So, But The Rock isn't going to call the head of The Hollywood Reporter and mm-hmm. complain about the review or, tr- or call to have that writer fired. But that's what would happen with a Black company. And it's not fair, but that's what controls the narrative around a lot of shows. Right. And I felt like with episode five, I still was, I liked episode five and I liked the conversation. It still felt unfinished to me because really his focus was more on white critics. But I was like, but what do you think of black critics? Mm. Okay. (laughs) Black critics that critique black creatives and black art. There is clearly an imbalance of power, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, a mainstream critic or that's a t- that's tied or a critic that's tied to a mainstream outlet will have more leeway as opposed to a black critic who writes for um you know a black media outlet and like you said that relationship between these black media outlets and the talent right and their talent it's it's very much like i need you to promote my product right mm-hmm. like you need to tell me you know, I, I want you to write these glowing reviews of this movie, even though people are having very different conversations. So, oh. uh, yeah, so there's that. I, just going back to the Rashida Jones thing, like, it was, I was just observing the conversation on Twitter, specifically in Black Twitter. And the thing with me is that I kind of saw both points of view, Okay. Now, the point of view of people who were defending Rashida Jones, who said, how are you going to say Rashida Jones isn't black? Her father's Quincy Jones. That was the number one defense. Her father's Quincy Jones. Her father's Quincy Jones. Her father's Quincy Jones. Yes, you're right. Quincy Jones, black, iconic, legendary producer. Okay. He will go down in the annals of black history. Okay. There is no debating that he's black. The question that I always have and that I always observe. And when I say observe, not judging, observing. So I know how to relate or write about this person. Whenever there is someone who is mixed race or biracial, let me say biracial, right? Specifically biracial. Uh, uh, Rashida Jones's father is is black. Quincy Jones and her mother was the late uh, pig, piggy lip, uh, piggy lip, uh, 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 Margaret Lipton. Okay. All right. So when you look at that, whenever I see biracial, whether actors or actresses, I'm always wondering, how do you identify? I'm not going to, I don't really subscribe to the one drop rule. Oh, somebody's black in your family, so you're black. I don't really subscribe to that because ultimately at the end of the day, it's about how they see themselves and how the same, almost, I don't want to say it's the same, but the way that we are putting pronouns in our, in our, um, profiles now, right? Mm-hmm. Just because someone may be female presenting doesn't necessarily mean that they are she and her. Right. They might like the pronouns they and them, right? right? We don't know that. So even now, even when I talk to people on Twitter, even if I see you're Avi as a woman, mm-hmm. I unless I know you personally and I know that you identify as a cisgendered woman, I'll say girl or ma'am or whatever. But if it's someone that I don't really know and even though your Avi may present as female or present as male, I don't make that assumption. So, I will yeah, use- I did that today I- because I found a funny mm-hmm. meme and the the person said a Sean Woodley production and it's right. Sean, S-H-A-U-N. So I was like, mm-hmm. hmm. So I said, I don't know Sean Woodley's at, but they're a genius. I didn't give them a gender because I couldn't tell from that 
what gender exactly. they were claiming. But you, exactly. you make your thought, your comments remind me of the discussion around Meghan Markle because she well, is as white presenting as you can get. But because she's got a black mama, oh, uh-huh. Meghan Markle, and she doesn't do a racism. I'm not saying she is treated. She is treated by uh-huh. the British press like a black woman. There's no discussion. Oh, absolutely. But as absolutely. far as her, she mm-hmm. is not really, to my knowledge, ever really presented herself as a black woman in the way, say, Halle Berry has, you know? Um, well, so, I mean, I know with Meghan Markle, because I started watching Suits a few years ago. I have a, a mutual friend of ours got me watching Suits. And when I first saw Meghan Markle, I thought she was maybe Middle Eastern or Latina. Right, I, right. I don't know. And then, you know, as I started watching the show, that's when they cast, um, um, in the, in the show, they show that she was actually biracial. Like she is in real life. A white actress played her mother and her, and Wendell Pierce played her father, which oh. was great. He's been on the show. Mm-hmm. So that was cool. Much like Maya Rudolph. When we talked about Maya Rudolph and at least two movies, Bridesmaids and Away We Go, mm-hmm. the casting of her parents were both, uh, biracial they were both a interracial couple um in a way we go um i forget who was black and who was white but her parents were presented as interracial and carmen Jogo, who is also biracial played her sister so that's all i needed to know i was like yep okay good and in bridesmaids we saw that her father was uh, this uh darker skinned black man with 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 locks and her mother was white so there's that um with megan markle i again going back to how people I go by how people identify themselves. Biracial people, even if you have a black parent, I it's not that I'm being the black police and I'm not, I'm just really trying to respect your wishes, right? And I'm not trying to push any identity on you that you may not want. So in the case of Meghan Markle, she wrote an essay for Elle magazine a few years ago. This was before, you know, she got involved with uh, Prince Harry and everything. Throughout the whole article, you can do a search, Meghan Markle, Elle magazine, she consistently in the article calls herself a mixed race woman. That is how she identified herself. Okay. She said her mother was black. She said her father was white, but throughout the whole article, that is what she described herself. She never once in that article said, I, Meghan Markle as a black woman. Okay. So again, this is not me policing her identity. I'm just rolling with what you said, mama, that you said you're a mixed race woman. So there you go. Okay, my. So going to um, Rashida Jones, I, in all of my knowledge of Rashida Jones, I have never, ever heard her refer to herself as a black woman. Mm. The only time I ever saw that was when she was playing Joya on Black as Fuck. <laughs> so, I, excuse me for having a little cognitive dis- dissonance when I was just like, wait, what? Right. And yes, this is with full knowledge, knowing that Quincy Jones is her father. Mm-hmm. I know that. I know she is biracial. Again, the question is, does Rashida Jones self-identify as a black woman. That is the only question that I need to fucking know. I don't care about these debates. I don't care what y'all, you know what I'm saying? Like the both sides, again, I see both sides. I see why people could be a little frustrated. Um, The conversation that I really, really, really wanted out of black as fuck, because you are a show that is critiquing blackness and race with every episode. You had eight episodes, right? Never once is colorism or light skin privilege mentioned in this damn show. Mm. And I'm like, are y'all for real right now? Never mm. once. Okay, you called her beige. Okay, but again, you're never always. You're never going to like 
investigate that? There's, I mean, I know Blackish had an episode a few years ago yes. about colorism, and it was, oh boy, it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. I was like, Kenya, can you get the fuck out of here with this bullshit? Because it was like you're you're watching Jennifer Lewis and Tracy Ellis Ross talk about, like Jennifer Lewis is making some goddamn points about colorism in this episode, and then I'm not saying Tracy Ellis Ross, Rainbow, the character is like. Oh, well, I have it hard too. As a, but no, 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 no. That's not what she's talking about. Okay. We're talking about colorism mm. <laughs> and light skin privilege. Okay. Right. And it's, it's very much like, it's very frustrating to me. And we see this all the time when we have this conversation about colorism and specifically targeted towards darker skin and browner skin, black women. There's this gaslighting that goes on and I don't appreciate it. And a lot of the gaslighting comes from two specific uh, uh, demographics. Okay. And if you hear your name, raise your hand and call yourself present. It's usually black men. And I'm going to be specific, certain black men who have either white or non-black partners, right. Who are lighter skin and also by certain biracial women, certain biracial and lighter skinned women. The minute you say it's like the Babadook, they, these are <laughs> you have conversations about darker skinned black women and colorism and the discrimination against darker skinned actresses. You don't hear shit from them. But then the minute you talk about colorism and light skin privilege, they just start popping up in your mentions like, and I'm like, I don't even know this person. I've been on Twitter for 10 years and I've been talking about dark, the representation of darker skinned women and you've just been quiet. And then the minute I talk about light skin privilege, then all of a sudden you have an, you have an opinion about colorism. Mm-hmm. Like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like, okay, we can talk about the fact that yes, there are people who do police and do say that lighter skinned black people are not, or biracial people aren't really black. We can call those people out. I don't, I, I'm not comfortable with that. Okay. What I don't like is like this constant, I don't know what you're talking about. We're all black, all mm. black people and, and mixed race people and blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, no, that's not how it works. Okay. Because there have been academic freaking studies. Okay. There was a study a few years ago that uh, studied the sentence time of black women, right. And their sentence times. And it was a specific pattern that showed that lighter skinned black women or biracial women got lighter sentences. I I shouldn't say lighter, shorter sentences than their darker skin counterparts. Okay. So we see this in the prison system, incarceration. We also see this in how people and how men, how black men pick their partners. Right. We even see it in Hollywood and how we will, you will cast a darker skinned black man. But then when it comes to his love interest, she's got to be at least four or five shades lighter than him. Mm. You know what I mean? So for you to actually see like two dark skinned people in a relationship loving each other, you you got to go to Ava DuVernay or Ryan Coo- You got to go somewhere like there are just some of these. And I include black creatives who are who are um, complicit in this as well, is mm-hmm. that somehow this idea that black women are not. Um, they're not supposed to be lovable, right? They're usually loud. They're angry. They're the, you know, and I say this in in air quotes, ghetto or whatever. And it's just never, you know, and then meanwhile, lighter skin actresses or biracial lighter skin actresses, they're the ones that get the cute, romantic, quirky roles, right? Mm -hmm. And we see this, like, they love them some Amanda Stenberg. (laughs) (laughs) Amanda Stenberg, Cersei Clemens, 
Um, you know, like there's a list of like Zendaya, you know what I'm saying? And, and the thing with Zendaya is that Zendaya is like, she's the one that blew up that, that was blowing up people's spots when she was like, if you could see what these people talk about in these casting rooms about what they define as a black woman, it will blow your mind. And this is her as a biracial, lighter skinned actress. And I appreciate Zendaya for that. And that's why she said in an article, she was like, I don't go for black women's role. I go for white women roles. Mm. I tell my agents, whatever Jennifer Lawrence or any of these other white A-list actresses are going for, mm. that's, I'm not going to, she was like, I'm not going to compete with my darker skinned sisters. I'm not going to do that. I remember Give me the that. Role. Yes. And I love her for that. She was like, no, I'm not going to do that. But even Amanda Stenberg was honest and she was like, they, at one point they were courting her for the role of, uh, for Black Panther, mm. uh, for Letitia, Letitia Wright's oh, role. For like, sure. Yeah. Although people got mad at her and I'm like, why are you mad at her? She's just telling you what's really happened. But that just shows you the, like the cognitive, the, like the cognitive dissonance that's going on in Hollywood and what, and what they perceive to be what black womanhood looks like. Mm. You know what I mean? So going back to Rashida Jones, this whole debate, I was like, this show needed to talk about that and all the things that you were roasting and dragging, but yet there's like this lack of self-awareness where you just don't want to talk about the fact that this is the second time that even your fictionalized self mm -hmm. is with a light-skinned biracial woman. Like, mm -hmm. when are we going to talk about that? You know what I'm saying? Like... I was thinking back a few years, uh, this was uh, back a couple of years where John Ridley, he was um, the executive producer of American Crime. And then he did that series for Gorilla, right? Oh, Lord. Uh, the, the Showtime show. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, and he was on the panel, right? And, you know, the, the, the whole premise of the show is that it was a group of, it was a fictionalized account of the Black Panthers in, um, in, in the UK, right? And the right. rise of the Black Power, the Black panther power movement in england right and so rightfully so they had a press screening and it was john ridley uh the south asian actress who played the lead i, I can't remember her name right now and so th the show features an interracial couple it's a black man dark skinned black man with a south asian woman and there were black women in the audience that were like um where are the black women on this show oh. right and then he made it into a well, the reason why I made the leads an interracial like black and South Asian is because I wanted it to be a reflection of my interracial relationship with my Japanese American wife. OK, that's not the question. <laughs> the question was, where are the black women? How are you going to tell the story about the Black Panther power movement? And you ain't got no black women in there. Like and even on the panel, Jerry, this is how egregious it was on the panel. There were no black women. Mm. None of the black actresses were on there. It, uh, it was it was the actress, the South Asian actress, uh, the lead actor, Idris Elba, uh, John Ridley, and whoever the uh, panel, the the moderator was. That was it. The, the the representation of black women, and I actually watched pretty much all of Gorilla. <sighs> the one representation we had of black women was in the first episode. This white racist cop who was trying to dismantle this power movement was sleeping with this black woman. His mistress was a black woman who was basically like a double agent feeding him information. Wow. 
Do you know how disrespectful that is for you as a black woman? Like, you're like, oh, I'm finally going to see the story. Because quite a few of the women that were in the screenings, their mothers and their grandmothers have been part of the Black Panther power movement. Oh, wow. So imagine how disrespectful that was for you to feel that your mothers and your grandmothers were going to be represented Mm. in this story. And they were totally erased. And then the one woman you see, she's basically like selling out her people. Like, that's fucked up. Like, I was just like, yeah. And so it was just sort of like, but then that was John Ridley where he was just focused on his own interracial relationship that he just totally did not even want to acknowledge black women. You know what I mean? And so I kind of feel like with black as fuck, it's like, okay, now you have another show. Like you, you had this opportunity where you could have, again, there were other actresses you probably could have entertained to play your wife. Um, again, not knocking Rashida Jones, but I'm just saying, I'm just like, I just have questions. I'm like, why is it like you're so laser focused on that specific representation? Like, you know what I mean? Some like, if you're. Can't see past yeah. their, some folks can't see past their own experience and can't see past their own privilege. And we've seen the combination of that in mm-hmm. Kenya Barris and how he's treated this whole thing. He feels mm-hmm. perfectly justified in retelling the same story over and over. And if in his mm-hmm. story, the wife is biracial. The wife is going to be biracial in every story he tells, and he has no qualms about that. Um, and I think he he, <laughs> he 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 pokes fun at it, but I think he's comfortable in that space because it's worked for him. And that's that's the height of privilege. People yeah. can't see past their own privileges because they're usually beneficial to them. It's mm-hmm. taken me. It took me a long time to unpack my privilege as a man. And, yeah. and I wasn't even aware of my privilege as a straight man, um, as mm-hmm. a heterosexual man, because as a black man, I don't feel like I have any privilege at all, you know? And then you break <laughs> it down. And then, yeah. and then you have to break it down and see like, you know what? I don't have to worry about, you know, you know, in terms of like my sexuality as, a, as a, you know, being questioned or mm-hmm. being used against me or being weaponized against me. Um, there's a lot of things, even height, I've come to yeah. understand being six feet tall is a privilege <laughs> in, in my <laughs> life. Like, yeah, you talk to the short men. They'll, they'll yeah, tell you. Like, I never even you thought know. about that, but it's little things you have to be, it's just be empathetic. And I yes. think that was a big, big thing that was missing from the show. And, and by design, I'm sure. They were, the show wasn't designed to be empathetic at all, but mm-hmm. I think we're, after seeing the same thing from somebody over all these years, I think, if you want to call them fans or followers of Kenya Barris's work, mm-hmm. we're hoping for something different finally, and they just didn't get it. Um, right. I've seen some positive responses too from people that I, you know, that I follow, and they they're, they're saying it's not as bad as people are saying, or they they outright think it's funny. It all comes down to what your expectations were going into it. Um, exactly. I don't. Yeah. I don't watch. I I don't watch Grownish or, or Mixed. This I gave them both a chance, and they just weren't for me. Um, <laughs> I just wasn't, and then I watched Black as Fuck more so because I wanted to look for questions to interview Kenya. But as a show, yeah. it didn't pull me in and make me want to keep watching. Um, from yeah, it, it it wasn't really saying anything new, um, mm-hmm. to me, and I was just like, I was hoping that's what. Like, I'll be honest with you, like, I mean, I, I it's a different genre, but I truly believe like Watchmen has really set the back, it set the mm. Um, has set the goal as far as like how we talk about race, like critical race 
on primetime, right? And oh. like Watchmen just blew me away. So now it's like, okay, if you're going to come here and you want to talk about race, like another show that I think is doing very interesting things in racial analysis is Little Fires Everywhere. Yes. Amazing I show. It's amazing. And it's like, you know that there are Black people in that writer's room. There are Black women, white women, Latina women, Asian mm-hmm. women, like, you know what I mean? So it's Carrie like- Carrie got bars. Her her character, Amelia, <laughs> oh my got God. bars. I love it. I love, love it. it. You also know that she's got her problems too. She's not perfect. She, we'll oh, talk, absolutely. We'll talk about them at, at some other time, I guess. Yeah. But, so um, I just kind of feel like if you're going to have a show that's called Black as Fuck, like you put the standard on yourself. Like you set the bar. Like you called, number one, you called it Black Excellence. I guess he felt like, oh shit, I'm not going to reach that goal. Okay. Well, <laughs> now you called it Black as Fuck. So what is so Black as Fuck about your show? His like, Kaepernick jerseys and his. It's, but they're funny. It's like, <laughs> like, like the satire is like, didn't you see CB4? Like we've mm-hmm. had like black satirical content like the boondocks. Like we've right. had this. Before. So I'm really frustrated by this argument like that black people don't get satire. Like, oh, don't you get it? Yes, I get it. Like I'm just saying you didn't. You didn't like, execute it well. Right. It sucks. Like <laughs> when you think about boondocks, I mean, they've had some, they've had hits and they've had misses. Although I will say like that some stuff, he was very like prescient. Like there were things like, like, really? How did you know this? Like the episode with um, the R. Kelly episode mm. still stands up, still stands up. Right. And mind you, I remember when that episode came out, people were mad as fuck, mm. right? They were like, oh, how you going to drag black people like that? But I was like, but there are black people who stand for R. Kelly. Mm. Like, what was crazy was like when R. Kelly was in New York a few months ago, or was this last year, there were women outside the courthouse with like signs that said, we love R. Kelly, which oh. I remember the scene from Boondocks. Yeah. That was exactly that. You had a lot of black women that were like, F that. And you got to separate the artist from the music. And he makes good ass music. And fuck if he, you know, peed on some little girls. And what was it? Oh. Riley said, if, she, if he peed, she should have got out the way. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that is, we understand like black people understand humor and we do have the nuance and the intelligence to understand satire when it's done well. All I'm saying about black as fuck is like, you really just brought out like these tired ass tropes and tried to like fool us. Like you brought something new. I guess white people think it's funny or, or new or whatever. But I'm just like, just for me, that's all I'm saying. I just didn't really feel that he brought anything new to the table and I felt like he really had an opportunity to say something but again it's like he drags himself in these shows but I don't feel at the end of the day I don't feel like there's any real self-reflection or change that's going on because that's the part of the satire like you call it out and it's like okay but what do you do what are you going to do next right so it's not enough to just be like well yeah, I'm a one trick pony and I'm a racial profiteer, a profiteer. That's what the daughter says to him, right? Right. Okay. So what are you going to do next? Okay. So now you, you've dragged yourself and you're the executive producer of the show. You knew what you said these things about yourself, but how the question is like, how is this reflected in your art? Because ultimately I do feel that Kenya Barris is trapped by the white gaze and white validation. I think there's a certain, I'm, I'm, 
wonder, is he trying to figure, like think himself out of it? Like, I don't know, but black as fuck. I, I was like, I still feel like you're right where, right where you started from. Like it's blackish and you just do some F-bombs and kids behaving badly and parents behaving badly. But really what's new about this show? Again, I don't need, you know, black kids to be, I don't need black characters to be perfect. I don't need that. But I'm saying, like, ultimately, like, what is it that you were trying to say with this show? And whatever it is he was trying to say, I just was not interested. Um, <laughs> That's the thing. He said it. He, everything he said on this show, he said on Blackish. I asked because one episode was about the gold chain obsession. So I asked him, I was like, where does this come from? When was your first gold chain? He's go, yeah, we talked about it on Blackish. Like, oh. he already did a whole episode of Blackish about the chain, but you had to keep it going on this show. Like, so what dude. you're saying is we just need to go back and watch Blackish, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you so much, Jerry Barrow. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I'll, I'm hopefully, you know, I'll be able to have something to invite you on soon. So we'll see. Oh, I'm. I will be here. I will be. Here. <laughs> okay. Uh, So thank you everybody for listening to another episode of the Spectrum Lounge. See you soon.